Well, surely it's no surprise to you that today we're going to be learning about Jesus. But it might be a surprise when we consider where we're going to learn about Jesus from, or from whom we're going to learn about Jesus. Someone we don't know much about, an elderly man who only ever experienced one Christmas. How can we learn from someone about Christ who only ever experienced one Christmas, who we don't know much about? Well, if his name is Simeon, we can learn a lot about Christmas. And so if you have a Bible, you can find Simeon's account in the Gospel according to Luke, and it's the second chapter, his first and only Christmas. If you would like a sermon title today, we could call it Simeon's Only Christmas. I'm not sure if I've ever met someone named Simeon. If we have a Simeon here, I'd love to meet you afterward. It would be a privilege. I know there are ministries named after Simeon. I know people have been named Simeon. What a great namesake. Given how much he knows about Jesus, given what he says in this text, praising Christ, what an awesome name. Just considering what he knows and what he says. It's infectious, if you will, to want to praise Christ in light of who he is and what he knows. I do have a top 10 list today. Sometimes I have an outline, sometimes I don't. I have one today. So 10 astonishing facts about Jesus, 10 astonishing things about Jesus that hopefully cause us to act like Simeon and praise Jesus. 10 astonishing facts about Jesus is my outline this morning, if you'd like to take notes, I'll highlight each of these as we go. I think the setting and the characters can become obvious. I won't spend a lot of time on that now. We'll just learn as we go. Uh, the first astounding thing about Jesus is that, number one, Jesus is holy unto the Lord. Jesus is holy unto the Lord. And if that doesn't make a lot of sense, because we don't speak in those terms today, hang in there, we're going to see it. And this first one actually doesn't come from Simeon, but it's in the Simeon account. And so I had to I had to make sure I included it because what it teaches us about Jesus is so good and worth noting. So look with me, if you would, at the Simeon account. We're going to learn about Jesus being holy unto the Lord in verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem. So this is Mary and Joseph with Jesus, the time of their purification, Mary in particular because of Old Testament law, bring him up to Jerusalem. Remember they were in Bethlehem. And then it says to present him to the Lord. Then it says in verse 23, if you'd look there with me, you'll see that it says, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called, and here it is, holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So there they go to Jerusalem. Special occasion, unique for them, firstborn, firstborn child for Mary. And they go to make sacrifice and present him to acknowledge that he is holy unto the Lord. 
The fact that it does say in our passage a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons would help us to know that they're a poor family. They're not a wealthy family because typically, according to Leviticus 12, you'd give a lamb and a turtle dove, but there is an allowance if you don't have the resources for a lamb. And so it looks like they're not a wealthy family, but they're on the poor side of things. He is holy unto the Lord. The idea of holiness, remember, or if you've never thought about it before, distinct, unique. There are ordinary things and there are extraordinary things. Uh, think in terms of even the temple, uh, things that were used in the temple in the Old Testament. Uh, they're ordinary things, but they're for special use. And so they're set apart uniquely for something special. So if this firstborn son is holy unto the Lord, he is set apart uniquely for the Lord's service. And you know, and I know, that while the firstborn son may be holy unto the Lord, regardless of who said son is, Jesus is holy unto the Lord like no one has ever been holy unto the Lord ever before or ever after. He's the ultimate holy unto the Lord one. Now, in addition, according to the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 13, verse 2, in addition to that purification sacrifice that is to be made, there's also to be a dedication. It says this in the Old Testament, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Consecrate, kind of a similar idea as holy, set apart, unique, special. It goes on to say in Exodus 13 two, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. So there's going to be something special about the firstborn. Now, if you're a firstborn, it's okay for you to feel special, okay? But we're not in Israel, so don't feel too special. Um, I'm not a firstborn, so I'm not feeling very special in that sense. But all of the firstborn, special, unique, given unto the Lord to honor Him in a special, unique way in each Jewish family. But we know that all such firstborns, given the fact that God is the God of history, God is the God of redemption, that God is the God of decrees and purposes, they've all been designed to anticipate the ultimate one who is holy unto the Lord. The ultimate firstborn, the ultimate consecrated one, unique, set apart, and as we will see, to represent His people and to save His people from their sins and to be devoted to God like no one else has ever been devoted to God. Firstborn, preeminent, unique, consecrated, it's Him. We won't take the time to go there, but if we were to venture into the New Testament that, that elaborates on such things, Jesus is the firstborn. Not as in He was the first one to ever be born. That's not true. And yet the Bible uses that kind of designation on purpose and specifically He's the firstborn because He's the ultimate firstborn. Because he's the most important. And therefore, like in Colossians, praise him, honor him. Because he's the firstborn who can be perfectly consecrated unto the Lord, perfectly holy unto the Lord, so we can have a perfect mediator. I can't resist. I'll, I'll read Colossians 1. We only have one service today, so I can preach as long as I want to. Actually, somebody already said to me, I'm hungry, so make it fa fast, Pastor. 
May God have mercy on that person's soul. There are cupcakes in the kitchen. Help yourself. <laughs> Colossians 1.15, joking aside, he is the, talking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Not the first created being, the firstborn of all creation, as in, he's going to go on to say, as in, number one, preeminent. That's him, holy unto the Lord like no one else has been holy unto the Lord. It's, it goes on to say, the Apostle Paul later on, for by him all things were created. That's why he's preeminent. That's why he's considered number one, firstborn in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Ah, firstborn. Yeah preeminent one and he is the head of the body of the church he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent it goes on to talk about how he will reconcile all things as a result and so again remember firstborn has a history of physicality of order but it's all been looking forward forward to the one who is Holy unto the Lord, holy, holy unto the Lord, the ultimate firstborn, the one that all other firstborns had been anticipating. He is the preeminent one. Mary and Joseph. Do you think they have any idea? I think they have some idea, but they're learning as they go. They're astounded at times. Little did they know. Maybe they knew, but little did they know by way of comparison just how holy unto the Lord Jesus is. But you know, and I know, consecrated perfectly. It reminds me of Jesus saying different things in his life like this. Here's how consecrated unto the Lord he, he is as he grows up and speaks. He says in John 4, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's how the ultimate firstborn should speak. The ultimate consecrated to the Lord one should speak. You know what I'm here for? To do the will of my Father. We're all to do the will of God, but we don't do the will of God. And yet this firstborn representative on our behalf is holy unto the Lord. Perfectly holy unto the Lord. Because He always does what is right. If you were a Jewish family, your first, firstborn son should be uniquely consecrated, given in the service of the Lord. But even the best of the best weren't perfectly consecrated unto the Lord, but one is, and his name is Jesus. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus says, I have come to do your will, O God. Yeah, he is that perfect perfect Exodus 13 to individual. And so I say what we should do as a result is praise him. We should say, bless the Lord, O my soul, because he has provided one who is the ultimate firstborn to represent us. Well, let's move on. Continuing with the narrative, a second astounding feature, a second astounding thing about Jesus. Jesus is the consolation of Israel. Jesus is the consolation of Israel. 
And when I first hear the word consolation as a 21st century American, I, I, I hear consolation prize. I hear second best. I hear participation award, right? When, when you don't win, you're on the game show and you don't win. Well, we do have some consolation prizes for our contestants. Thank you for playing. Well, it's lame, but that's not the idea as we will see. I promise you that's not the idea. Consolation. Let's, let's, let's think about what that actually means. Let's keep going in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous. So he valued the law of God. He sought to follow the law of God. He was a Bible person and devout. And so he was not just casually doing these things. He, he was, we would say, an Old Testament saint in the New Testament. Kind of weird, right? Uh, an Old Testament saint in the New Testament because we're in this transition period during the opening chapters of the New Testament, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. What's this about? He's been waiting for something very important. He's been waiting for the consolation of Israel. It means comfort. It means comforter. That's what he's been waiting for. He's been waiting for Israel to find ultimate comfort. To find ultimate, similar kind of idea is rest. It's a messianic kind of idea. A Messiah. We're waiting for an ultimate king who can deliver us from our enemies. Who can provide for all of our needs. Who's not corrupt in the littlest bit. We're waiting for ultimate Comfort. Ah, oh, we're safe. Oh, all of our needs are met. We're waiting. When is that going to happen if you're a believing Jew? It's going to happen when Messiah comes. Not all of these lesser Messiahs, but the ultimate Christ, the ultimate Messiah. We're waiting for the Comforter. Isaiah 40. Listen to these Messianic prophecies. Isaiah 41 says, excuse me, 40 verse 1, and to comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. See, that, that happens when you have a Messiah. Comfort comes when the warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. Forgiveness. We're going to be comforted when we don't have to fear our foes and when we don't have to deal with our sin. Comfort, oh comfort my people, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. As in, as in, a uh, 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 double as in an actor to one for one, uh, a stunt double, if you will, somebody who stands in your place. Perfect payment. Exactly matching. There's going to be perfect pardon for our sins. Only happens when Messiah comes. He is the comfort of Israel, the consolation of Israel. Isaiah 49, 13, sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth, break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people, Messianic Psalm, and will have compassion on his afflicted. Isaiah 51, for the Lord comforts Zion, he comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, how about that, her desert like the garden of the Lord, joy and gladness accompany this, joy and gladness 
gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the voice of song. When you have the ultimate comfort, no more sins for you to worry about, no more enemies to worry about, you say, oh, finally, comfort that is restful. One more, I can't help myself. Isaiah 61 verse 2 says, To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. So taking care of our foes. To comfort all who mourn. Simeon has been waiting for the consolation of Israel. The comfort of Israel. And some of you are thinking, I thought the Holy Spirit was the comforter. Well, Yeah, and John, in his gospel account, puts a lot of emphasis on that. And here, Jesus is the comforter. So who's the comforter, Jesus or the Holy Spirit? Right? Both are. Both are. And it's no accident that the Holy Spirit is even called the Spirit of Christ. It's fascinating, and now I'm getting way off because I've got a lot of time. I'm gonna have to go, I'm gonna have to go go really fast in a little while. But it's so good. That when Jesus uniquely sends the Spirit to His people to comfort them, it's messianic. He's the Messiah. He's the Deliverer. You don't have to worry about your sins anymore. You don't have to worry about your ultimate enemies anymore. Great stuff. Great, great, great stuff. I'm not afraid of my enemies. I'm not afraid of God's law. I have comfort. I have rest in Jesus. Now, we should move on. Are we on? What number are we on? We're on three? Okay, good. Third astounding reality about Jesus. Number three, Jesus is the Lord's Christ. He is the Lord's Christ. Verse 26 says, Six says, and it had been revealed to him, Simeon, by the Holy Spirit, that he would not see death. He has this special, unique promise that he wouldn't die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. The Lord's deliverer king. The Lord's ultimate deliverer king. As I like to remind people so many times, there, there have already been many Christs. There have been many, many, because there are many messiahs, many kings, even in Israel, many anointed ones. But they keep having funerals. And they keep sinning, even the best of them. Now we have the Lord's Messiah. Uniquely the Lord's Messiah, as in He is going to be the one who will die and be raised from the dead. He is the one provided. He is the ultimate one who comes in the line of David, the lineage of David. And I'd like to just point out real quickly to you what a good uh, point it is here to contrast the Lord's Christ with all of the, I don't mean Old Testament Christ, Old Testament Messiah kings, but all of the cultural kind of savior, deliverer, provider Christ that we deal with. So there are all kinds of, we might call them when we're... um, Speaking of these things in a Sunday school class, we have many functional messiahs, many functional deliverers, many functional need meters. And so I can find forgiveness this way and I can find significance ultimately in this, that or the other thing. And if I only have enough of this or that, it will make me satisfied. 
and the list goes on and on and on. And we just create all of these messiahs that can deliver us from our anxieties, from our pain, from our suffering, from our sins, from our death. It's so good to see here that Simeon, this wise man under the power of the Spirit, gets to see the Lord's Christ. And it's easy for me to preach that to you and say, you need the Lord's Christ. Simeon needs the Lord's Christ, the one who can actually deliver ultimately, who can bring you peace, joy, hope, and happiness ultimately like no other Christ can. He's the Lord's Christ. He and He alone can deliver. Well, we should move on to number four. A fourth astonishing thing about Jesus is Jesus is the child Jesus. Jesus is the child Jesus. We'll do this one ever so quick, quickly, but it is important. Verse 27 says, And he, Simeon, came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus, I want to emphasize that for the sake of being a Bible teacher today, the child Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he, Simeon, took him up in his arms and blessed God. So the very one who will say before Abraham was, I am. The very one who is the eternal son. The very one who is the word, the eternal word. Is at this point in time a child. To the point where Simeon takes him in his arms. He touches. He touches the child. He touches the baby. The eternal son becomes one of us. Incarnation takes on flesh. We could put it in different terms. You get the idea. He becomes, I want to emphasize for our sake today, he becomes a child as in he becomes a member of our human race. He becomes a member of the human race. And I'm fond of saying, why do we need the incarnation? Why do we need him to be the child Jesus, the human Jesus, the one of us Jesus, so he can represent us? So he can be our Savior. He has to be one of us. And here, incarnation, Simeon touches him. It reminds me of John, even actually, when he talks about uh, he himself, we handled. We touched him. He's not a phantom. He's not a, ooh, you know, kind of spirit kind of thing. A mirage. He becomes one of us so he can save us. I have found in my short little life of 52 years, lots of Christians don't have a good strong category in this era of time for why Jesus needs to be a human being. So maybe we spent so much time fighting people who denied his deity uh, that we've forgotten that he needs to actually be a human Fascinatingly enough, a lot of the old heresies have to do with the fact that he has to be a human. Lots of people in history have believed he could be divine because there are many gods. 
And so remember, both are critical, both are important, but he has to be a human being. He really, truly has to be a human being or he can't fulfill the law's obligation for us as a human being. He can't be our representative unless he's truly, genuinely one of us. So I love to remind people of both. Both are true and both are really important. If we had time, we'd go to Hebrews chapter 2 to see this as well. But here, Simeon, he's so human, he holds him as a child. I love it. I'm thankful that Simeon got to hold baby Jesus because I need him to be my human representative as the God-man. And so do you. Our substitute for our sins, the just for the unjust, to be our Savior, to bring us to God in His arms. Now let's move on to the fifth. A fifth astounding thing about Jesus. I I hope you're wanting to bless God like Simeon does because of all of this. A fifth astounding thing about Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise. He is the fulfillment of God's promise. Another quick one. Again, if we looked at verse 28, takes him up in his arms. Notice verse 29. Lord, now think fulfillment. Now, right here, right now, before my very eyes and in my hands, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. So, so there it is. Now, I realize this is a, a promise to Simeon, a, a personal promise to Simeon, but we know that in this personal promise to Simeon, he's seeing the Lord's Christ. He, he, he's seeing the Savior. So there's fulfillment to Simeon. Yes, absolutely. But there's the expectation of Simeon that he would be able to see the consolation of Israel. This is fulfillment. It's, it's been done. This has happened. So I can die in peace. I can depart in peace. I can be done. Now I've seen how peace with God can be had. It's through him. And it's happening right there. Okay, let's move on to number six. I told you we'd go fast. Number six, next point that is astounding about Jesus. Jesus is God's salvation. Jesus is God's salvation. Not for God, that would be funny. Not for God, but from God. This is similar to what we've seen. Verse 30 says, For my eyes have seen. Again, I've touched and I've seen. My eyes have seen your salvation. Now let's correct him if we want to play over literalist. He's seen God's salvation? What does that look like? He hasn't seen God's salvation. He's seen the baby Jesus. He hasn't held God's salvation. He's held the baby Jesus. But you see the implication, right? We, we, we see what's going on. I've seen your salvation because your salvation comes through your son. It's extraordinary to say that about Jesus. Jesus, God's salvation. It reminds me of our studies in Matthew chapter 1 verse 21. Always and forever. He, he name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. I have seen your salvation. It reminds me of Jonah chapter 2 verse 9. My favorite text in Jonah. Best text in Jonah. Salvation is of the Lord. Learn from Simeon's good theology. Your salvation comes not through me, not through you working in me. 
to make me a better person over the course of time, though God might do that. Salvation comes from outside. Salvation comes from that child who wouldn't remain a child. I've seen it because I've seen him. This is why Simeon is blessing God. This is why we as Christians would want to bless God as well. We would want to echo the Apostle Paul and say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of who Jesus is. He's God's salvation for us. Well, let's transition now and look at verse 31. That you have prepared... So here he has seen the salvation. I've seen your salvation that you have prepared, verse 31, in the presence of all peoples. And some faithful Bible scholars see that as looking toward the Old Testament and all of the types and all of the shadows and the unfolding drama that has looked forward to the ultimate Passover lamb. And so he, that all of this has been uh, via eyewitness test, uh, eyewitnesses. We've seen all of this unfolding. That might be the idea. All of that is definitely true. But it seems, I, I, I prefer, both are true, but... When he says in verse 31 that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Yes, he's been preparing through the past. But it seems like he's looking now to this one, Jesus. Prepared before all the peoples. In other words, now with Jesus' birth, it's not a private event. It's not fantasy. It's a historic event. It is a public event. It is not a Jewish secret event that is supposedly happening behind closed doors. Uh, it's not the stuff myths are made of. Rather, right here in the presence of, to go back to our text, all peoples, public event, ultimately Jew and Gentile. It's not like the mystery religions. Incarnation, dedication, consecration, all of these things that are happening in the birth narrative, unfolding then later in the gospel narrative, are, are in history. Not in a back alley. Not in somebody's mystical feelings. No different from, again, mystery religions. Public historic event. Because I think the idea could be wrong, but I think that's the idea that he's getting at here. It fits Luke chapter 3, verse 6. 3, 6 says, And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Borrowed from Isaiah 40. Christianity is an eyewitness religion. Or, let's put it another way, a public religion. A religion that has to do with historic, public before eyewitnesses, friends, and foes kind of religion. And I think that's the stress. Okay, number seven. Next astounding feature regarding Jesus. Jesus is Savior of the world. Jesus is Savior of the world. I think we've already kind of dabbled in this already, but we're going into verse 32 now. A light... For revelation, that's wonderfully said. If you want to see something so it's revealed clearly, you can't do it in darkness. You need to do it with the help of light. And so that's what's happening. A light for revelation so people can see and know and understand to the Gentiles, 
to the, to the non-Jews, to the nations. There are Jews and Gentiles, the only kinds of people in the world. Jews and non-Jews, Jews and Gentiles, to the Gentiles and for the glory and for glory to your people Israel. So notice the parallel there in verse 32. God has made known the way of salvation, whether you're a Jew or not a Jew. He's the one and only Savior, sometimes elsewhere referred to as the Savior of the world. He's the one and only way to be saved. He's the way God has chosen to save people, to deliver them from their sins. This is John 3. God's prerogative to do it, and this is how He does it. And He's testifying to that. This is hope for Gentiles. This is hope for Israel. Consolation as we've already seen. He is none other than that one. He's referencing here from Isaiah chapter 49 which will be quoted in Acts chapter 13. He's the one. He's the one and only way to be saved. This is why at the end of Matthew's gospel account, we're called to make disciples of all nations, Jews and Gentiles, all different kinds of people, the one and only Savior. And then the response comes in verse 33, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. Our son. We know things about him. We've already heard things about him. We've already been happy about them. (laughs) But it's just one level of greatness to the next level of greatness. More and more T's crossed, I's dotted. This son of ours is the hope of the world. Is God's means for Reconciling men and women and boys and girls from every tribe, tongue, people, nation. He's the one. You got to like Simeon. (laughs) Good stuff. Okay, we're doing 10 of these. We're on number eight. As we marvel at the marvelous, joining even Mary and Joseph and Simeon. Number eight, next astounding feature about Jesus. Jesus is appointed for the fall and rising of many. Jesus is the one who's appointed for the fall and rising of many. If you're taking notes, sorry for that one. Jesus is appointed for the fall and rising of many. 34 says, And Simeon blessed them. He said good and positive things about them, true things about them. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, that is Jesus' mother, Behold, this child, the child that he had been looking at, the child that he had been holding, the child who was none other than God's salvation, remember, behold, this child, the one who is God's salvation, is appointed. The Apostle Paul sometimes translates that word destined if I recall correctly, is appointed, is purposed, is destined, is designated. This is on purpose. This is not happenstance. This isn't based upon luck. No, he is appointed, no doubt by God, for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Which, the rising part sounds good. 
But the falling part doesn't sound so good because it's not. And so now our text actually takes a bit of a turn as far as tone and tenor. Sobering. He, he's the chief cornerstone, Peter will say. But he's also what? He's also the rock of offense. This one here, who I held and looked at, who is God's salvation will be the one who leads to the rising in a positive sense. If you need to see, you get up on top of something. But also the falling. Many. The one who is God's salvation won't be Savior for everyone because there's going to be a fall. He will divide the nation. And we know He's already been dividing the nation when we read about Him as He grows up. And in a similar kind of vein. Let's go to the number nine. Astounding feature about Jesus. Similar to the last one. Jesus is appointed. Still carrying the thrust of destined, purposed. Jesus is appointed for opposition. He's appointed for opposition. We could have included this with the last one, but I didn't want to give you a top nine list. It does say there toward the end of verse 34. Carrying the thrust of appointment, carrying the thrust of the child, it, it, it says, for a sign that is opposed. A sign that is opposed. That's Isaiah suffering talk. The very one who will provide atonement for everyone who would ever trust in him is the very same one who will be ridiculed, mocked, and opposed This is part of Messianic prophecy. By design, this is going to happen. By appointment, scheduled ahead of time. Think of the heaviness of Mary and Joseph. The Lord's Christ. Israel's consolation. Savior of the world. But you also need to know something. And I would suggest to you that you need to know something. The whole world right now isn't gathered like we're gathered saying, That's right, blessed blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. I found forgiveness, I found hope, I found reconciliation. I can actually now tolerate other Christians. I like some of them. Because I've been reconciled and they've been reconciled. My, my perspective in my life is so different. This is good news. This is awesome. I love it. And so isn't it great that everybody loves Jesus? No. Because they don't. And Mary and Joseph, via Simeon, and I would say, we, via Simeon, need to understand, oh, how about even Isaiah better in the Messianic prophecies? But it's heavy drama for mom and dad at this point in time. There will be grief associated with loving Jesus. 35 says in the parenthesis, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. And we know something about Mary and we know something about what will happen when she watches her own son go through what he goes through. 
just as a quick aside, I think it's kind of fascinating before we, before we move beyond this. Just number one, just the honesty of things, of knowing ahead of time. It helps further equip us. I remember first becoming a Christian thinking everyone in the whole planet would be excited because Pat Abendroth became a Christian. It was a Pat duh moment. But I also think it's fascinating. Here's what I wanted to bring up. The fact that in our text, in, in oh, verse, well, verse 34, we have uh, decree talk, appointed, destined talk. And we also have, if we keep reading, like in verse 35, we have pain talk. And, and I point this out to you because I know lots of you believe in things like destined, decreed, purposed by God, irreversible, it's going to happen. That's good. That's biblical and right. But it's not, so now we enter into some sort of numbness or indifference and we pretend like reality is not reality. Here's how it's going to be with Jesus and it's going to cause you pain and suffering that is real. Now, thankfully, we know because of what Jesus does, has, will do and has done now from our perspective that, that, that it can mitigate, it can help us, and it can help us get through the hard things. I'm thankful for that. And one day there won't be any more pain. I'm thankful for that. But please at least see that these are real feelings that are happening here prophesied by Simeon for Joseph and Mary. Because of who Jesus is, it's going to be conflict not just for him, but it's also going to mean some conflict for you. Okay, finally, next astounding feature, fact, or thing, whichever one you would prefer. Number 10, Jesus is the revealer of hearts. He is the revealer of hearts. We see also in 35, after the comma, so that thoughts... Luke likes to use the word that he's using there for hostile thoughts. Chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 9, chapter 20... So that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. What's that about? Well, yes, he's the great savior and all who trust in him will be delivered and have hope and confidence, but also built in to Jesus and who he is as the savior, as the consolation of Israel, as God's salvation. What's going to happen is it's going to expose people for not being legitimate. We know what happens to lots of the religious leaders. Their thoughts are exposed. Their legitimacy is exposed. Their genuineness or lack thereof is exposed. Jesus does this. Jesus does this. I I like what John Stott said, the elder statesman evangelical who's now in heaven, if you will. No one divides like Jesus Christ. Got a lot of mixed emotions about that. But no one divides like Jesus Christ. It's good that he tells us ahead of time. Israel's Comfort. God's salvation. Yes. The fact that Pat Abendroth can be forgiven. 
the fact that you could be forgiven, it's good news. But it's not good news to everybody. We want it to be. We pray for people's thoughts to be changed in the Luke sense. Revealed so that they can be changed. But it's sobering. Well, there are things in this account, and we're going to stop there because we're just looking at Simeon. There are things here that are awesome highs, and then some of these things we've been ending on are kind of on the lows. I want to let you leave on a high, and I want to just read for you a text that is a firstborn text that helps people like you and people like me who maybe are going through conflict and maybe think, you know what? Being associated with Jesus might not be worth the conflict. Because in the here and now, it kind of looks a lot like we don't have anything except the conflict. Listen to these great words. But you have come to Mount Zion. He's talking to people who haven't. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings. Doesn't sound like my life. Doesn't sound like your life. But he's saying, this is a spiritual reality. This is true. How could it possibly be true? Well, then he says, and to the assembly. Oh, here's how it can be true. To the assembly of the firstborn who were enrolled in heaven. The way to have this be true spiritually and to have it be true actually in the future is to be associated with the firstborn. And if you're associated with the firstborn by faith, who is none other than Christ, he's saying, you have come. These things are true, regardless of what you're sensing in the here and now. And to God, you've come to God, the judge of all. But in this case, you're not afraid of him. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Because Jesus is God's salvation. Because Jesus is the consolation of Israel. Because Jesus is the God-man. Because Jesus is firstborn. Remember that. Hebrews chapter 12. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the fact that we have confidence not in ourselves, those of us who are trusting in Christ, but we have confidence in one who is eternal, one who became one of us, one who suffered, lived and died and rose again and ascended and is reigning and ruling even right now. And we long for his return where we will step into the fullness of these great blessings. We bless your name for your good and graciousness to us. Help us to live with hearts filled with gratitude 
for what you've done for us through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.